People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Let me tell you about my guest, Barry Saltzman, an award-winning contemporary artist who currently works in photography, video, and mixed media, and whose projects have been shown widely around the world. His photographic work in particular began with a fascination for the practice when he was a teenager, during a time when it served as a way for him to grapple with the racial segregation in what was then apartheid South Africa. Today, his work continues to explore challenging themes around social, political, and economic narratives, often coming down to the core concept of identity. Acutely relevant and brave in its willingness to confront, Saltzman's photography garnered the 2018 International Photographer of the Year Award in the Deeper Perspective category at that International Photography Awards, the IPA. Now, his latest exhibition, The Other Side of Christmas, is going to be shown at Deepest Darkest Art Gallery here in Cape Town from the 7th of November to the 28th of December, The Other Side of Christmas. Uh, Barry, first of all, welcome. It's good to have you in our studios. Welcome. Hi, Rodney. Thank you. I'd like to find out about this, The Other Side of Christmas, at the Deepest Darkest Gallery, this exhibition. What actually is it? What can we expect? Well, it's a series of photographs that I shot in 2014 on a road trip through the southern part of the United States. And it was this time in my life where I was considering alternatives to New York City, which is really where I'd lived for 30 years. Um, I'm an American citizen, a naturalized American citizen, but I never really identified with being American. I completely identified with being a New Yorker. But every time I called myself an American, it sounded strange to me, and people would make fun of it. And so I had just got out of art school. I had just finished my Master's of Fine Art and Photography, and I decided to follow this tradition in contemporary photography, which was really exploration of America through the vehicle of the road. And I traveled through the southern part of the United States in part because many photographers that I really admire had done work through the southern part of the United States. And I think also, you know, sort of still having, I think, carried the baggage of apartheid South Africa with me, oftentimes people would say, well, the American South was no different. Well, and in fact, the American South was completely different. But I think it was because of that racial past or politic in the southern part of the United States that it was important for me to negotiate or navigate that. So I drove through the the country The resulting work is this exhibition, and the reason for the title is because I made this work between um, probably October and December 2014. So it was just the lead into the 2014 midterm elections, which was an important precursor to the 2016 presidential elections, and we know how that ended up. And it went through till Christmas, and it was, you know, this... I think, stark reminder that the media sort of generated interpretation of the holiday time is, in fact, not the reality for probably the majority of people. So the work ended up becoming something of a critique, I suppose, on the American dream. And there are 17 photographs in the exhibition. Um, Some of them very literally deal with the other side of Christmas, but most are much more metaphoric. When you set out on a trip like this, do you have sort of in your mind what 
the end result will be, or is it a trip of discovery? Presumably, it's a kind of a project that you think, right, I'm going to go on this road trip in the south. Do you have any sense of a narrative of what it's going to turn out or what you're specifically looking for? <laughs> you know, it's a great question, and the answer is no um, in this particular instance. When I set out on this journey, I was absolutely creatively stuck. I had just got out of art school um, where you know, so much of the work was assignment-based. So I knew what I was doing from week to week or you know, month to month. And then I just had this creative block. Like, what am I going to take pictures of? <laughs> and so this trip started with another artist who was working on something completely separate. Um, and I just decided I would go along and explore, sort of see where the work took me. And as I started to sort of form a point of view about what I was wanting to say, the second and third trips I took, I took alone, and I was much more directive. But it took me a good sort of six weeks of work and a first edit to even sort of formalize an idea or point of view, a hypothesis, think about a dummy title is always helpful to give, you know, some, some direction. But I certainly didn't set out um, with this particular endpoint in mind. But it evolved as I was working on the project. What also interested me, what you said just now, and I read as well somewhere, you said um, you don't think of yourself as an American, you think of yourself as a New Yorker. What is the difference, may I ask, naively? Well, I suppose New York, not unlike a major metropolitan city in, in any country, is not at all representative of the population at large. And I think so much of the outsider perspective of what it means to be American is tied a lot into the idealization of the American dream, this land rich with opportunity, um, a lot of that fostered by, by the media. But I think the point that I was really trying to make with this body of work is that the reality is very far from the myth of the American dream. And in fact, that notion of the American dream is not something that Americans buy into and believe. I think it's something that's perpetuated by the immigrant, the person desirous of becoming an American, because life is bloody hard for the vast majority of Americans. It's far from that idealized sense of the land of the free and the brave and wealth and prosperity and, and opportunity and equality. So, you know, it was important for me to navigate those lines in terms of understanding, you know, American New Yorker, because the city of New York is much more of a place which is a true meritocracy. It's, you know, all about sort of a work ethic and so on. But it doesn't translate very far outside of the metropolitan areas at all. Okay. And, of course, we must remember, and I didn't say this at the beginning, uh, you were born in Zimbabwe. You're an African at heart, aren't Correct. you? Correct. Born in Zimbabwe, um, and I did my undergraduate degree here in Cape Town at UCT. All right. Now, I want to talk more in more detail about the photographs you took, some of which I've seen. But let's have your first choice of music. What have you chosen to share with us? Sure. So particularly as it relates to this show, I've been listening a lot uh, recently to American blues. Um, it's the music that has its origins in the southern part of the United States. But I was particularly interested in trying to push toward a more uh, contemporary um, interpretation of of blues. And there's a multiple Grammy-winning artist uh, called Keb Moe, which is his stage name. Um, and the piece that I picked is called All Around the World. And it's a piece that Keb Moe does with another blues artist um, called Taj Mahal. <laughs> 
called Keb Mo, and the piece was called All Around the World, the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Barry Saltzman. And Barry, uh, in view of what you were mentioning about the American dream before, that's quite interesting to have listened to those words in that song, which I've never heard before. I specifically picked that one because the genre of blues is, is oftentimes sort of depressing, down, you know, very sort of meditative, soulful music but this particular piece i liked because it is uplifting it talks about hope and a future of joy um, but it is a contemporary interpretation of blues but very clearly has its origin in blues um and in fact the line that i particularly liked there was when they say something along the lines of um and one day there won't be no reason to sing the blues and i think it's an extraordinary thing for an artist to wish a time where your art medium or your art form becomes irrelevant because the world is a better place. And I, you know, think about that often in the context of some of my other photography work, 
which relates to the recurrence of genocide. And, you know, that work will be finished when genocide is finished. And you'd long for the day that you don't have that subject matter to talk about or the blues to sing about. So it really, you know, was poignant and resonated for me in, in that sort of way of positivity and the the artist's work being done. Okay. This uh, um, exhibition, The Other Side of Christmas, which we are going to see in Cape Town from the 7th of November to the 28th of December at the Deepest, Darkest Art Gallery, um, it has been described, I read somewhere in one of the press releases, as a documentary. But isn't it more of an exhibition, or have I got the wrong end of the stick? You know, it, it has been described as a documentary series, Um the implication behind documentary is fact-based, it's truth-telling. I think it's truer to say it's a body of work documenting my observations, uh-huh. but they are entirely my observations. Um, but I always think it's a very interesting conversation because it really gets to the essence of, you know, what is photography? Is it fact or fiction? You know, is it art or science? And my sense of it is that it is, in fact, both. And it exists somewhere on this continuum between art and science or, or, or fact and fiction. But every photograph ever taken has an element of subjectivity, an enormous sense of subjectivity, even if it's just where I place the frame. What do I include? What do I exclude? How do I compose it? What kind of lighting? Which already is imposing a photographer narrative, subjective assessment point of view, even on the most documentary or, you know, of, of um, photographs. And at the you know, more art side, by definition, photography has what we call indexicality. There is a referent. At su- there is whatever the object was that formed the photograph is in some way identifiable. It could be distorted. It could be abstract. But there still is some referent, and that's the part that's fact. And in my sense is when photography becomes so abstract that you can't identify any referent, we've in fact transitioned to a different art form. That might be digital art, but it's, I don't think it's any longer photography. But when I think of photography, it all falls somewhere on that continuum between fact and fiction. And I think this work is certainly no exception. I think it is clearly my interpretation of what I was seeing as a very representative sample of what America is about today. Having looked at just some of the pictures that were sent to me just on my computer, there is, uh, may I say, a sort of a bleakness about some of them. There's, a, there's an empty, rather damaged swimming pool in what looks like a rundown precinct. There's a photograph of a department store, Abdullah's, uh, taken across a sort of square where it's been raining and the wet makes it look more grey and bleak, even two chairs standing in the middle of a road next to a house. There's a kind of a bleakness about it. I mean, you weren't going about trying to uh, this is a con... Uh, please, you don't have to answer. <laughs> you weren't going about trying to destroy the American dream, were you? Uh, certainly not. I wasn't trying to make any kind of... Um, draw any kind of conclusive or factual um, co- conclusion or, or mm-hmm. this is not an exercise in you know, any kind of data-driven social science. But what I was going about trying to do was help myself understand what, in fact, it meant and mm-hmm. where did reality lie in this idealized sort of myth. Um, and I think if the work causes the viewer to just question a little bit, um, I've done the Absolutely. best that, that I can do. I'm not trying to make any conclusive 
um, assessment of it, but I do feel that there is um, a gross sort of disconnect between the lived reality of most Americans and this aspirational sense of the American dream that the immigrant has or the foreigner has. And I think, you know, a lot of this awful news story that just came out in July of this year when this father and his young two-year-old daughter were found washed up um, in the Rio Grande River trying to cross from Mexico into the United States. And you have to think this, this, this man, to have taken the risk of crossing the river with a two-year-old daughter tied to his back, had to have had an extraordinary sense of what or how much better the opportunity could have been for them in the United States than you know, in their home, El Salvador. And so I think this notion of the, the American dream, while I'm in no way trying to squash it, it's just one person's work, but I do think it's something that is perpetuated to a large extent by the outsider, you know, the, the, the foreigner. And I say, you know, my work is not intended to be conclusive about the American dream, but it is intended to challenge you um, about the risk of getting trapped into that idiom, the, the grass is always greener on the other side, when in truth we know it's probably always browner. And interestingly, you taking this exhibition around the world, in fact, could I say that, in fact, you might be aiming it at non-Americans? Has it been shown in America? It hasn't been shown in America. Um, it, this is the first time I'm showing this body of work. It is in Cape Town, and I think it makes sense for a South African um, audience, or potentially more sense for a non-American audience, because the genre of, of road photography is so well documented and so well trodden in the United States that I think it doesn't create that same sense of, gosh, I hadn't thought about America in this light, as it might do, I certainly hope it will do, for um, a non-American audience, particularly a South African audience. And I think, you know, in the challenging political times people face here right now, it's very easy for us to get caught up in this notion of the grass is greener. Um, and I think this is a, intended as a reminder that, you know, in fact, it really is greener. I mean, really, as in R-A-R-E-L-Y, as yes, opposed yes. to R-E-A-L-L-Y. It, yeah. it very infrequently, is it, in fact. Did, was there any reason you chose Cape Town, or was it just because it's a place you happen to love? Because you live between Cape Town and New York. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Cape Town about half the time. Okay. So it was the obvious place to set up an exhibition like this. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Now, we're going to have your next piece of music, Hosier. H-O-Z-I-E-R. Tell me what we're going to hear. So this is a song by Hosier called Take Me to Church. I first, I remember vividly first hearing the song, and it was the visuals, actually, that attracted me before the music, which may be a little unusual in a music show, but perhaps not that unusual for a photographer. Um, there is a pretty well-known contemporary American photographer called David LaChapelle, and he directs a spectacularly beautiful um, dance video to this music, which if you have not seen, I would absolutely recommend you watch the, the David LaChapelle video. Um, so this is Take Me to Church by Hosier. My lover's got humor She's a giggle at a funeral Knows everybody's disapproval I should have worshipped her sooner If the heavens ever did speak She's the last true mouthpiece Every Sunday's getting more bleak Fresh poison each week We were born sick You heard them say it My church offers no absolution 
Take Me to Church, performed by Hosier, another a second choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, the award-winning photographer Barry Saltzman, whose exhibition, The Other Side of Christmas, will be at Deepest Darkest Gallery over the festive season, in fact, from the 7th of November to the 28th of December. And we've been talking about some of those pictures, but the other very interesting thing that you've already mentioned, Barry, is your interest in genocide. But you also said when we were talking about the blues and things, 
What I find interesting was, I think you said it, when you take pictures, it's where genocide was, something along the lines of anything can happen anywhere. So your pictures of the genocide are slightly different from what we might think they would be. Am I, do you get my drift, as it were? I, I do indeed, and your, your assessment is absolutely accurate. I work at very specific GPS coordinates where acts of genocide have been perpetrated, but then I shoot completely abstract photography. Um, so I want there to be this element of the truth, which is, you know, this, this awful thing happened at this precise location. But I shoot in abstract ways because I feel like we've become largely tone deaf to the perils of, of genocide. And I think whatever we are going to take or not take from mainstream media, historical documentation, the archivist, the photojournalist, the documentarian, whatever we are going to take, we've taken. There's not another awful photograph that's going to shift our thinking about it. So my working hypothesis as, as an artist on this topic is if I can show you something a little more abstract, does it in fact give you more access? Because it's not so literal that it gives you permission to say, well, that's not my problem. You know, that happened there, not here, or that happened then, not now. The abstraction starts to give you something you personally can identify with. And before you know it, you're thinking, gosh, that's not that different from the field behind the house I grew up in or, you know, where I went to play as a kid. So that's my hope is that through this notion of more abstract imagery, you can push the viewer to thinking just a little bit differently about a topic that I sadly think that we've dangerously become somewhat um, tone deaf or immune to. Mm -hmm. Because some of those areas can be quite beautiful, can't they? And it sort of takes you a bit of a while to realize the enormity of what actually happened there. That's exactly the point of it, I think, mm -hmm. is this sort of yin and the yang, the positive and negative, the dark and light, which are these forces that coexist in perpetuity. So while something awful may have happened on this piece of land at this location at some point, something celebratory has happened there too. It could just be you know, the rebirth or the rejuvenation of the, the vegetation, the field. So you'll notice in just about every piece of imagery I've ever taken related to this topic of genocide, there are never people in the photographs. Because I think, you know, as, as an artist, I feel like it's not my place, it's not my prerogative, it's not my right to imply some value judgment on the farmer in the field because there are mass graves below that. So the work is, you know, very um, intentionally supposed to bring about that notion of the good and the bad. They're very aesthetic. You know, you're looking at these beautiful images, but there's something in the caption or the title or the text which has, gives you a clue as to what's going on. And the question always is, you know, is that enough information? I happen to think it is. Other artists would give you more and be more factually specific. And you've also worked quite a lot uh, on the Rwandan genocide, haven't you? When I say worked yes. quite a lot, that was a fairly major uh, project of yours. Yes, so the, the, the award that you mentioned, the International Photographer of the Year Award that you mentioned at the, at the outset, um, was an award that I was um, given for work I had done in Rwanda to time in with the 25th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, which is this year, 2019. Um, I was in Rwanda working on this ongoing project of abstract landscape. And while I was there, I heard a news story 
that a new mass grave had been discovered in a village just outside of Kigali. The village was called Kabuga Village, about 40 minutes outside of Kigali. And so I went with the organization I was working um, with, and I said, I didn't want to read, I'm not, you know, I don't shoot documentary or photojournalism, um, but I wanted to go and see it in order to inform my thought process. And when I got there, it was just the most extraordinary, traumatizing experience because these victims of genocide had been murdered um, in the most undignified way. And there their clothes were being recovered 24 and a half years later and just heaped up in these massive piles. And you'd see a little child's dress coming out or a boy's sock or whatever it might be. And I went back afterwards and I said, we can't just leave these in huge anonymous piles. And I got permission to work with the clothing and take each piece and lay it out separately and shoot it as though I was shooting a portrait of the victim. And it's very interesting because... I didn't feel like I was shooting still life at all. I felt like I, w- I could see the boy or the girl. And I knew, you know, a lot of clothing is gender nonspecific. But in my head, I knew I was shooting a portrait of a young boy or a young girl or an old man or a woman. And I think of the work very much as a series of portraits. Each one has a text in the first person. Um, and that project is the one that I won the, the award for, which is very different in nature from these abstract sort of landscapes I do at, at sites of genocide. But it was just one of those moments as, a, as an artist which you feel is like too compelling hmm. and too raw not to communicate. Barry, why, why were they taking the clothes off? Were they taking the clothes off the decomposed bodies? The, the clothes were coming out of this mass grave, um, and I was photographing the clothes as they were coming out of the ground. It's a particularly challenging subject for Rwandans because most people were only able to identify their loved ones who'd been murdered by the clothes that they had been wearing at the time when these clothes were recovered from mass graves. It was, you know, when you deal in challenging material like this, as an artist, I feel like it's very important not to be emotionally manipulative because the work is so emotional anyway that I work hard to try not to be emotionally manipulative. And Which must be difficult, actually. It's very difficult when you're dealing with such emotional um, material. And so the volunteers were helping me lay out the clothes, and I was shooting them, and I had wanted to do a series of 100, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But um, we were probably 20 in, and I noticed that most of the clothes were um, children's clothing and underwear. And in the brief, I'd said to them, I want to shoot complete garments, because that way it gives me a sense. I feel like I know the person who wore it if I see a complete garment. So 20 in or so, I stopped them and I said, look, I want more of a, an objective representative sample of the people who were killed here, not just children and underwear. And she said to me, you don't understand. That doesn't exist for adults because most adults were hacked to pieces with machete and you'd asked us to give you whole clothing. So I'd started then shooting a few clothing fragments to represent it. Um, And when you work on something like that, you know, when are you done? Is it, you know, one portrait is representative or, you know, you could shoot millions, literally, of clothing fragments from the Rwandan genocide. But I needed a way to feel like I'd completed the project. And I had remembered the story that a survivor had told about surviving by pretending to be dead, lying under a pile of dismembered bodies. 
and she could hear the murderers talking. And she heard the one say to the other, I just need one more and I'll have 100. And the entire time I was in Rwanda, those words just echoed in my mind again and again. Um, and so this body of work is 99 portraits of genocide victims as represented through the clothes they were wearing on the last day of their life. And the 100th picture in the series is just a gray square, in my mind, representing all other genocide victims. So that's, the, that's the, the, that body of work which I won the award for. And something I just, I get, you know, I still get very emotional talking about it. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Gosh, Barry, that's, um, let's, let's have a piece of music just to, because that is slightly traumatic to even have listened to you, let alone experienced what you did. And we're going to relax with Ella and Louis. Is that right? Yes. Um, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. And I think we're going to listen to Cheek to Cheek. Uh, it just goes back to the music we opened with, um, the, the, which was the Kebmo contemporary interpretation of blues. I think this goes back to some of the founding members of the blues movement. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And I seem to find the happiness I see When we out together dance cheek to cheek Yes, heaven I'm in heaven And the kids that hung around me through the week Seems to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak When we out together dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I'd love to climb to mountain Reach the highest peak But it doesn't thrill me half as much It's dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I'd love to go out fishing In a river or a creek But I don't enjoy it half as much As dancing cheek to cheek Now mama, dance with me I want my arms about you The charms about you Will carry me through Yes, heaven I'm in heaven And my heart beats so That I can hardly speak And I seem to find The happiness I seek When we out together Dance cheek to cheek. Take it, Ella. Swing it. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak, and I seem to find the happiness I see. 
when we're out together, dancing cheek to cheek. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and the cares that hung around me through the week seem to vanish like a gambler's lucky. When we're out together, dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, I love to climb a mountain and to reach the highest peak. But it doesn't thrill me half as much as dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, I love to go out fishing. In a river or a creek, but I don't enjoy it half as much as dancing cheek to cheek. Come on and dance with me. I want my arm about you, the charm about you will carry me through to. That I can hardly speak, and I seem to find the happiness I seek when we're out together, dancing cheek to cheek. Yes, dance with me. I want my Certainly two legends there, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong, and that piece called Cheek to Cheek. The third choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, the award-winning photographer Barry Saltzman, whose exhibition The Other Side of Christmas will be at Deepest Darkest Gallery over the festive season from the 7th of November to the 28th of December. And that, as I say, The Other Side of Christmas. We were talking just before the music about the horror, I should say, of... Um, what you went through when you were in Rwanda and your subsequent exhibition. And, of course, for people who are interested in seeing your work, is there a website? How can we see it? So that particular project um, is titled The Day I Became Another Genocide Victim. And there is a representative sample of perhaps 20 of those portraits of genocide victims up on my website, um, along with a little text explaining the project. Um, and that website is www.barrysalzman.org. 
www.salzman.net. Okay, and Salzman, by the way, is spelt S-A-L-Z-M-A-N. Barry, I read somewhere that you got into photography. I think, in fact, I mentioned it in the introduction. Uh, it served as a way for you to grapple with the racial segregation and apartheid South Africa. Have you ever photographed any of the sort of horrors that happened here? You know, it is the way I got into photography, and there's this extraordinary thing about the camera in that it gives you permission to go someplace that you may not otherwise have gone. And I don't necessarily mean literal permission from the authority, but it gives, for me, it lets me give myself permission to go on this sort of journey, oftentimes a metaphorical journey, not necessarily a physical journey, but it, it, it creates the, 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 the reason, the rationale to go on this sort of process of exploration. And so, um, you know, the first meaningful photography I remember um, uh, working on was um, a set of pictures that I took uh, at Crossroads, which I think today is still the largest of the informal settlements um, in the Cape. And I was this kid at a high school in Newlands and took my bicycle out to Crossroads day after day after day with the camera. And I, it was territory that was not covered by young white kids on bicycles um, at the time. And were it not for the camera and the interest in photography, uh, I don't think I would have found a vehicle to try and sort of grapple with a lot of what was, you know, going on. And I, you know, should remind people, you know, I didn't know what Nelson Mandela looked like until I arrived in New York City in 85 because his image was banned in South Africa. So having had the camera as this tool to try and sort of pierce the veil in my own little personal life um, was an extraordinary, you know, extraordinary moment. In terms of having worked on sort of South African political issues you know, as I sort of started working more professionally and full-time with photography, the answer is not yet. Um, I do constantly think about this notion of what the place, the traces in the place where trauma had at one point existed. And obviously, there is no shortage of examples um, of that in this country. And I may get to it. I think, you know, a lot of times um, the work I do sort of has to feel like it's Coming from within, I can't sort of impose, I, you should do this, you should do that. I, I have to get to a point where I feel it, and oftentimes it's a very sort of uh, reductive um, uh, you know, approach. So I think about this notion of sort of post-apartheid South Africa, places of trauma. It has been covered um, quite extensively by uh, other artists in this country, so I need to figure out you know, what is it that I can bring to the body of work that maybe says something that hasn't been said or gives people a different way to access the material. So it's it's percolating somewhere <laughs> okay. in, in, in the recesses. But Barry, it just strikes me listening to you on the program today that a lot of what you do is to do with trauma. I mean, you were visibly moved talking to us about the genocide pictures you took in Rwanda. Do you ever film anything else? Uh, it seems as though your photography is sort of, it must be cathartic in a way, but yet there's lots of trauma involved. <laughs> you know, it, it's sort of my axe to bear, I suppose, in that I think because I came to photography as a second career, as an you know, older artist, I almost feel like I have a duty to myself to work on issues that have substance and meaning to me. Um, 
So I find it very difficult to just take aesthetic, pretty <laughs> pictures, which oftentimes is what the market wants. Yeah. Um, there, there was a very, very prominent person um, in the South African art world and you know, one of the leading forces in the international art community. And this person was taking a look at my work and said to me, I don't need to know what drives you to do it. If you need to deal with this issue of trauma and difficult material, that's something between you and your work. But I, as the viewer, don't necessarily want to know that this beautiful landscape is over a site of 18,000 mass graves. And I always thought that was very interesting because for me, I struggle to make work that I don't connect with emotionally um, or intellectually. And a lot of the work is driven by an intellectual process. So, you know, right now, you know, the notions of identity, place, belonging are, are very relevant to me. And a lot of the work sort of is, is exploring that. If I'm done with that at some point, I'll explore something else. But I don't think it's trauma as, as specifically as it is around notions of humanity, identity, place. You know, th- those issues, I think, are more recurrent in my work. There's a lovely quote here that I also found on your uh, press release, and it's to do with a, a commentator called Ashraf Jamal, who has described this exhibition of yours, The Other Side of Christmas, as, and I quote, a sobering reminder that there is no indifferent place, using the description by the poet Rainer Maria Rilke. No matter how dispassionate or detached our everyday encounters might appear, Jamal writes in his essay, actually, on your project, it's within these fleeting moments that our existence assumes its deepest traction. We know ourselves best not through special or extraordinary circumstances, but in and through the indifferent bilge and brickback, which is the binding sump of life. Beautifully written. Who is he and why was he writing about your work? He, he writes amazingly. I'm completely you know, in awe of someone who can not only look at art and, and formulate an idea, but can then write it. Um, so this is an essay that Ashraf Jamal wrote. He's a well-known commentator on contemporary South African art. He's an educator. He's published several books on South African contemporary art. And he's written this um, companion essay. I think it's it's sort of part of the, the body of work. It's not meant to explain it at all. It's really this sort of companion piece. But it's completely his interpretation of the work. And this notion of there being no indifferent place that he highlights uh, is, a for me, a wonderful interpretation of the work, which can often um, be interpreted to be more bleak. You know, this, this notion... As I said at the beginning, yeah. It, it's the counterweight to that, Absolutely. I think. It's this acknowledgement that, you know... Um, wherever we are, we have the ability and I'd say the responsibility to sort of seek out what works in our environment. And I think in his words, he's warning against that axiom of the grass is greener on the other side, much like I had talked about at the outset. Yes, you've warned us very clearly about that, I have to say. I'm so looking forward to this. We have to end. Uh, Barry, it's been so fascinating talking to you, if a little traumatic. Barry Saltzman, my guest, and his exhibition is called The Other Side of Christmas. It's at the deepest, darkest gallery during this festive season, and it runs from the 7th of November to the 28th of December. Barry, thank you. And what's your last choice to leave us with as we ponder everything you've said? And so before the last we see your song, exhibition. <laughs> yes, um, the last song actually has absolutely nothing to do with the exhibition or anything we've talked about. I just think it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful song. It's by a man called Maxwell, 
and it's the cover of a song originally written by Kate Bush, but she wrote it um, for a movie from the point of view of the male lead. So having Maxwell sing it is very fitting. It's called This Woman's Work. Barry Saltzer, thank you very much. Hope to see you again. Thank you very much. I appreciate that.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.